0: morning church. Uh, It's good to have you guys here and worshiping with us today. Uh, We're going to get things started in just a moment but before we do uh, I just wanted to say a word of welcome. Thank you for choosing to gather in this way with us in worshiping. We'll start in uh, Colossians in a second but before we get started with our, our passage this morning I simply just wanted to let you know that while we're doing this Uh, And in our activity building, at the church building right now, uh, there's the flock of, of Spring Hill gathered in the flesh. And so we want to pray now for that service, while we also pray now for this service. And it's a weird time, and we're still kind of adjusting and getting a resumption plan in place. And while you haven't felt like you can maybe be there with us yet... Uh, We are hopeful that that day is coming soon. And so we are trusting God and we know that there's light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, And even still, let's pray today that this day as you worship and hear the same message that we will hear in the activity building, that this will be written on your heart and that this would be for your growth and for your benefit. And also just a reminder that at the end of our time this morning, there will be discussion questions that you can discuss With the people in your household Uh, and so let's go to the Lord in prayer and thank him for a time that we get to worship and ask for him uh, to give us his blessing all right let's pray together father we thank you for the gospel of Christ Jesus thank you that we're able to worship once again in a strange but useful way I pray that you would use this time that we examine your word in the book of Colossians I pray that you would root us deeply in your word, that you would root us deeply in the foundation, the solid rock of the gospel of Christ. I pray that you would make us greater into your image today than we were yesterday, and that we would be more like Jesus as a result. We thank you, Lord, for giving us life and purpose and a spirit of life because you have given us life. I pray, Lord, that you would be with the people that felt like they can't quite be with the church in the flesh yet. Uplift their spirit now as we seek to be uplifted by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and open to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29 this morning. Colossians 1, 24 through 29. We've been looking up until this point in this letter from Paul to the church in Colossae. And so we'll pick up here in just a moment uh, whenever we get to read. As you're getting there, uh, when I was in college, I, was, uh, I didn't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of money now, but back then I really didn't have a lot of money. And so my friends and I would, uh, before, you know, I had a woman in my life, my wonderful wife, before she even was in the picture, uh, we just, you know, bachelored it up all the time and always ate off the value menu at fast food restaurants. Just a wonderful slice of my life. Uh, and one of those restaurants was Wendy's. And whenever we would go to Wendy's, I would definitely feed off of the value menu. One of the sandwiches that I would get, and I'd usually get one, two, or three and just eat these barely unhealthy meals. One of those was their little chicken sandwiches, a dollar. I mean, who can pass that up, right? It was a dollar chicken sandwich, and I remember uh, I had a dream one time when I was in college, and I slept on this mattress on the floor. I mean, really just a, wow, what an existence, right? And I'd have been into this sandwich in my dream. It was a chicken sandwich, and I was over at my friend's house, sitting on the floor with my legs crossed. very vivid dream. i have been into it, and I, I mean, it was so vivid. I could. There was a hair in the sandwich. In my dream, okay? This hair in the sandwich, and, I've been, and I looked down in my dream, okay? And I see this hair and it was so vivid I could feel it on my lips and I was just like, this is repulsive. And so again, in my dream, I grab the Wendy's bag off the ground and I pull it up to my face and I go to spit out what's in my mouth in in the bag and I feel it was so vivid. I could feel the bag on my face and I could feel even the, the wrapper from the sandwich inside the bag and I spat it out and then I woke up because the senses took over and I was, my face was covered in saliva because I spat all over my pillow. It was two or three o'clock in the morning and the dream was so real that I had done something completely outrageous. And so again, being a disgusting college student, I just flipped the pillow over and went back to sleep. Yeah, that's, that's right, and so God has sanctified me in ways that you could not even begin to imagine. But the reason I say all that is that, man, the vividness of that dream, the, the feel, the taste, the, the smell, everything was so vivid, but my mind was fooled into thinking it was real. And there's a principle there, and that's that this life may seem to be as real as it gets. Life as you know it may feed your senses, the senses of taste, of touch, the senses of smell, of feelings. Feelings may feel so real, but true reality is found not in this life, but in the life to come. It makes no sense, if you think about it, it makes no sense to suffer in this life unless there is a cause greater than this life worth suffering for. And that's exactly what we see at the heart of this letter. Paul is suffering. He's in prison. And so I want you to understand that if it makes no sense at all to suffer in this life unless there's something, a cause greater than this life worth suffering for. In the realest, in the most significant sense, you are not a school teacher, you're not a construction worker, you're not a plumber, or whatever your vocation is, you're not a student. In the realest and most sincere and significant sense, you're not those things. You, if you're in Christ, are a servant and a soldier. Of the most high God, and you are living day in and day out behind enemy lines, representing the mission of your master. Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae about his experience as a servant of Christ in order to jolt them into fervency to serve the same master. So let's look at it. Colossians 1 24 through 29. Paul writes, Now within me. We left off last week really on the end of verse 23 that I really chose not to to talk too much about the last the second half of verse 23 but it leads naturally into today's passage. In verses 21 through 23 we saw a few things. It was last week. He started out in verse 21 saying that you, the church, believers, you were alienated and hostile, but you've been reconciled to God. You were far off but now you've been reconciled and brought to fellowship once again. He then tells them, persevere, stand firm. Don't shift away from the foundation of your hope, which is the gospel. He says then in the last part of verse 23, the gospel of which I am a minister. It says minister in the ESV. Your translation may say servant. That word literally can be translated either one of those. Minister or servant. You know, in our culture, there are two terms that are interchangeable. And I'm going to tell you why they shouldn't quite be interchangeable. The two words are pastor and minister. You may say that, you know, Brother Caleb is is a minister. Or say, hey, he is our pastor. But I'm going to tell you why those terms shouldn't quite be uh, literally interchangeable. Because for one thing, the word pastor, it means shepherd. It means a shepherd over a flock of believers. Whereas the word minister is a little bit different. It simply means someone who performs a service, a servant. A minister is a servant. It's someone who performs a service. We would even say that someone administers anesthesia because they are ministering a or serving a service, and they're giving medicine. And That's what a minister administering uh, anesthesia would do. And so a minister is simply put a servant. And so those two terms are a little bit different, a pastor being a shepherd over a flock, a minister being a servant. And the reason that I take time to kind of differentiate those things is because what Paul is saying here is that I am a minister. I am a servant serving the gospel to people. If ministers serve something, that's what he's saying. My ministry is serving the gospel to people. Now listen, more than just pastors do that, right? That's why those terms shouldn't quite be interchangeable. Paul wasn't a pastor; he's a missionary, and so if Paul does this. Yes, your pastor ministers the gospel, serves the gospel to people. But here's the thing: the apostles did this, but you do this. You are a minister of the gospel. You are someone taking and serving the gospel to people. But for Paul, and for you, and for me, as called ministers and servants of the gospel, we got to understand something. Y'all, this is a high calling. <laughs> This is a very high calling. But God didn't call angels. He didn't call seraphim, cherubim. He didn't call these things to this service. He called you, and he called me. He called us. Simpletons, simple people. And Paul teaches us how to live out this high calling. We're going to see this, Christ in me, me in Christ. We kind of see That sentence kind of goes both ways. Christ in me, in Christ. We're going to see that in three ways, that that is the basis of our ability to go and live up to that high calling. Number one is the joy of suffering. That should sound like a strange phrase, the joy of suffering, because it sounds like it should be contradictory. Suffering is not enjoyable. And yet, a biblical principle is that there is joy to be found in suffering. Paul states his status as a minister, as a servant of the gospel in verse 23. And now he's going to delve into his current circumstances. Again, suffering, and yet he's marked by joy. These two things together. Look at verse 24. He says, Now I, look at this word, rejoice in my sufferings. Why? For your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Church. The word now there is, is kind of a tricky one, and I'm going to tell you sort of a paraphrase as to what that one little word kind of means as it guides us into the rest of the sentence. What he's saying is, now what I want you to understand is, okay, I'm transitioning, now, this is what I want you to understand based on the fact that I am a servant and minister of the gospel. Now, Paul then says that I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church kind of a strange sentence that he says. Now, Paul isn't saying that Christ's suffering was lacking in its ability to save sinners. That would be outrageous because he's already said quite the opposite already in this letter. And he says it again in this letter. In a couple of places that you see this, just a, just a little bit above this, in chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in Jesus, in Christ, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, listen, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It doesn't sound like he thinks there's anything lacking in that work, right? Just a little bit below in chapter 2, verse 5, he says that Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, including Satan, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Lacking? It doesn't really sound like it. Christ's sacrifice wasn't lacking He suffered and purchased salvation for believers. But hear this. This is what Paul's saying. His suffering was to purchase sinners, so it was lacking in regards to evangelistic suffering. This is what I mean by that. What Paul is saying is that Christ's sufferings were to purchase those who will believe. My sufferings and the sufferings of believers are to take the gospel to those who will believe. That is, the church. So let's keep going. Verse 25. He says, of which, that's the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. In this verse, Paul is emphasizing to the church of Colossae that God called him to be a servant, a minister, a steward that makes the gospel fully known, especially by the way to Gentiles, which he kind of hits on in verse 27 but let's keep going verse 26 to make the word of god fully known he says the mystery verse 26 the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints now the word mystery in god's word is very interesting it's kind of tricky it's sort of a mystery in and of itself because it doesn't simply mean that something is unknown If there was an unsolved mystery, it's because it's unknown. Remember that show back in the 90s, Unsolved Mysteries? Well, at the end, you don't figure out who done it, because it's an unsolved mystery. And that's the point. When we think about the word mystery, it's sort of open-ended. But in the odds word, that's not really what the definition of that word means. A mystery is something that once was, as we understand it, a mystery, but has since been revealed. It's been revealed to those who believe, is what he's saying here. So what is the mystery? What is the thing that was once a mystery to generations of people, but has now been revealed. He tells us what it is in verse 27. He says, but now the mystery has been revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery. Here it is, mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What's the mystery? The mystery that has since been revealed is that Christ is in sinners, the hope of glory. Now we may read this again in the Bible Belt and we say, okay, so Jesus died to save sinners. What's so mysterious about that? But you got to understand that we read this on one side of the cross, whereas many people were reading it on the other side for a long, long time. And even now the Colossians have, they don't have your Bible, they had their Bible which is mostly made up of just Old Testament scriptures and this letter from Paul. Now to us, what's so what's so mysterious about that? you got to understand for thousands of years, that God promised that he would restore a broken humanity back to fellowship with him. We see this in Moses and the prophets, as they would say, the Old Testament. But the mystery, the profound thing that is strange, is that God promised that he would restore a sinful humanity, that he would justify the guilty, that he would declare sinless those who are anything but sinless. you got to understand that that is mysterious because he couldn't do that, God couldn't do that, and still be just. If a judge is just, then he passes down the right judgment every time. And you and I deserve something far worse than righteousness than heaven, than glory, because we're anything but holy. And so if God is just and we are not justifiable, and yet God has promised that he would justify us, that's a mystery. Something's got to give here. How can a holy God restore fellowship with unholy people and still be considered holy? How? It's a very simple three-word phrase. Christ in you. That's how. Christ in you. How can Christ take up residence in us? Because he has made his people like himself. How can God justify the unholy? By making them holy. You see, sin left a God-sized stain that needed a God-sized cleansing flood. And it occurred when Jesus shed his blood at the cross of Christ on Calvary. The mystery, one song, says it so beautifully. It's called His Mercy is More, and very simply it says, Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It's a wonderful anthem for us who are in Christ. And Paul's point here is that the beauty of the gospel is that suffering in this life identifies us with our suffering Savior. The mystery is profound. Christ in us. He suffered for us. The best way for us to identify with Him, then, is to suffer in Christ. Paul is telling Colossae that he is willing for his life to be difficult if it means that the gospel reaches people. He went to the Gentiles. But you and I are called to the mission field all the same. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to Rome or Colossae. You don't have to do that in order to be living on mission. Your mission field is right here in Millport, Alabama. It's in Lamar County. It's in Columbus, Mississippi. This is our mission field. Right here in our state, in our area, that we don't have to go across the ocean to find people that need Jesus. And we are called to that right here. And that's what Paul's saying, that you must be willing for your life to be difficult if it means that the gospel reaches people. And that's a great question for us to ask ourselves. Am I willing for my life to be difficult or less than ideal for the sake of the gospel to reach people? Am I willing to surrender? Are you willing to surrender 10% of your income, that Christ may reach people? Are you willing to miss the parties because God would have you have better friends than those that go get wasted on the weekend? People that influence you, it matters. Are you willing for your life to be difficult for the sake of the gospel and reaching people? Are you willing to guard your friendships and guard your inner circle? Parents, are you willing to upset your children by not giving them all that they want, but rather giving them what they need? Are you willing to discipline your Saturday nights in order to devote your Sunday mornings? Are you willing to reevaluate your lifelong career choices? Are you willing to sacrifice a vacation week for a mission trip week? Are you willing to sacrifice your time for the service of the church? A servant of Christ is a servant of Christ. Because joy comes not from comfortability but from identifying with our Savior and His mission. Christ in me, me in Christ. We see that first of all, that joy is found in suffering because it identifies us with Jesus Jesus. The second is reaching people with purpose. Reaching people with purpose. God had called Paul on mission to reach people with the glorious riches, as he put it, of the gospel. He is called Colossae, and by the way, he is called Spring Hill, to the same mission. Here, he then details that mission. Look at verse 28. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? Here's the purpose. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what's the end game? What's the purpose of our calling? The end game is presentation of people as mature. Your translation may say as perfect in Christ. That word that's translated whether it be mature or perfect is teleos. It's translated that because really there's not a great translation for this word. I would argue and commentators would argue the same that the word perfect is probably too much for that definition while mature is maybe an undersell of what the definition of that term really is but what it means is this and this is the longer definition of a word that they put in one little word it's blamelessness by what you do or don't do some of the synonyms of that would be having integrity what you think and what you do when no one's watching or having righteous thoughts and actions Another synonym would be having uprightness, being honest, honorable. So what's the end game? Not just to make converts, but to make blameless disciples. And that's what Paul's saying. I want to present you before God in the last day as people of integrity, of people of righteousness, as people of uprightness. In church, that's our goal too. That's our goal too. Well, we want to present people in the same way as blameless, as holy, as like Jesus. Well, how are we supposed to do that? What's the strategy, in other words? Paul tells us the strategy in verse 28 with two things. He says, by warning everyone and by teaching everyone. Your translation may say admonishing. It's another word for warning. Warning and admonishing and then teaching. Well, why would it be important for someone's maturity, their growth in godliness, to be warning them and admonishing them? Well, you remember the situation. There's false teachers that are infiltrating the church in Colossae. People that are causing them to doubt or to, to wander away from their faith. And that's what Paul is saying is to hold fast. Be rooted in what you already know to be the true gospel. It's a warning, a word of warning. He then says, teaching everyone. This one's a little more meaty. That means showing people the beauty of God. He's saying, show people the love of God. Help them to grow in their love of God. LeBron James is a basketball player that you probably have heard of, or maybe not. But he's a pretty good one. Uh, but he does a lot of other things. You know, he plays basketball, but he's a he's a businessman too, and he does a lot of humanitarian efforts and things. One of the things that he did uh, is about a year and a half, a year and a half or two years ago. LeBron James built a school for inner city, underprivileged children, and it goes way beyond just building the school because he equipped that school in a lot of ways, and he's making a big difference in the city of Akron, Ohio, which is his hometown. He's done many charitable things, but that's one of the greatest and has the biggest influence because he's hand-by-hand hand influencing the small children in their lives. You know, As bystanders, you and I, as we see people doing things like that, and he's on a grand scale, but you see people do good. In different ways, maybe often. But when we see somebody do something like that, it really causes us to admire something about them, right? You may not care much about it, but just hearing me say that, that's a pretty admirable thing to do. That's admirable. It speaks highly of someone's character to go and do something so charitable and sincere. But when you see in someone a shocking display of character, whether it be kindness or generosity or selflessness or whatever it may be, your admiration for them grows. But I want you to understand something. The charitable donations and honorable acts seen at times in people pale in comparison to the gracious and merciful acts of our God recorded in Scripture. And as you look at those types of acts and your admiration for someone grows, as you grow to know what God has done in His Word, you grow to admire and love Him. You grow to admire Him and love Him as you grow to know Him. And this is at the heart of what it means to be teaching everyone. I'm not here just teaching you the Bible. It's bigger than that. I'm teaching you why God is worth admiring and giving your life to. The Bible isn't just a study book. It's a book that you learn and love God. That's the purpose, is to grow in your admiration and affections for God. And so what does it mean that you, you may not be a pastor or a preacher or someone that can stand up and teach in front of people. But when you're sitting across the lunch table from someone, when you're sitting in the break room with someone, when you're sitting in your living room with your small child, you can love people by showing them how to love God. By showing them who He is. That's what it means to be teaching people, teaching everyone about who God is. In other words, people are our God-assigned purpose. People are our purpose. The third way that we see Christ in me, me in Christ, and this is the best one, I think, is that God supplies what he requires. This is such good news. God supplies what he requires. The calling of a Christian is, as we said at the beginning, an incredibly high calling. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Suffer as I suffered. Suffer as Jesus suffered. He says, love people as I've loved you. Love people with all your heart. Love people. <laughs> I say that over and over again because we brush over that statement like it's nothing. But you and I both know that sometimes people, us are included, are hard to love. It's a high calling to be a follower of Jesus, to love people. And then even greater, the calling... Be holy as I am holy, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And so it's neat what we see in verse 29 that Paul says, knowing all those things, he says, I struggle. I struggle. Look at verse 29. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all, but look at the word here, this pronoun, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I'm going to read that again. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, that he powerfully works within me. I love this verse because it's a moment of honesty from a man that's in prison for preaching the gospel to Christians, now writing a letter to Christians about standing firm in that same gospel that got him thrown in jail. Strength to wrestle, strength to struggle, to persevere is at the heart of Paul's words in this passage. It's also at the heart of a passage you may know well, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What he's saying is not, I can go and do some amazing athletic achievement. I can go and and be be a brilliant person. It's not just something we throw on our backs as our motivating factor to go and conquer the world. No, what that means is what Paul is saying is, I can suffer. I can suffer. I can stand firm because I have the strength of God in me. The strength to teach others the gospel doesn't come from me, Paul's saying. It comes from God's strength. The strength to withstand the temptation to doubt and to fall away that you may be going through right now. That strength, it doesn't come from you. It comes from God. It's God's strength. And that's what Paul's saying. I struggle. I wrestle. I fight. I need strength. God's strength. The reason I emphasize that is because we put Paul on this mountaintop pedestal. But you are not so different than Paul. He was a gifted and blessed man, but he was a man. You know, when Brooke and I were first kind of beginning ministry, and we weren't even here yet, but God was getting ready to call us here, it was a very overwhelming feeling because, look, seminary can only teach you so much, and there's so much that you learn just by doing it. Uh, and Brooke, especially, was very overwhelmed uh, when it came to being a pastor's wife. And we were very uh, comforted. Well, we were uncomforted, so to speak, because we felt unqualified. We felt under-equipped. We, we did not feel ready. <clears throat> but I want you to understand something that we understood in that phase of life. It's very important. When we think about going and living for Jesus, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. God supplies in you what he requires of you. He supplies in you what he requires of you. He does that by giving you his own power. The spirit of God residing in the heart of every believer. He gives you, supplies in you what he requires of you. He supplies in you love for people. He supplies in you faith in him who sits on the throne. He supplies in you a source of kindness when you're not feeling very up to being kind. He supplies in you patience when you're far from patient and your nerves are being tried. He supplies in you self-control over lust, over addiction, over gossip. So I think the best word of application as we consider who the supplier is That we're not the source of the strength to go and live for Jesus, but that he is. A great word of application, I think, is to simply ask for his strength and not rely on your own. Lean not on your own strength, but ask for his strength. Not just to ask for it, but to depend on his strength, not your own. Look, to not daily communicate to God Reliance on him is to communicate to him a lack of need of him. When we are silent of our need for God, what that communicates to God is that we really don't need him. And I'm as guilty as that as you are, I'm sure. That if we are sobered and understanding where the source of our strength to go and live obediently to honor Jesus comes from, then we will find ourselves on our knees each day begging that, that strength would prevail over our temptation God doesn't he doesn't call the equipped he equips the called he supplies in you what he requires of you man I hope that you take great refuge in that I know that there are people listening to this today that are empty that are empty and they are seeking desperately to be filled that maybe it's the season of life with COVID-19 or maybe it's bigger than that and you felt like this for some time and you've just felt spiritually empty. As we pray and as we close, and you may just need to pause the video and just spend some time with the Lord. You may need to walk out of your living room and leave the family and just go and talk to God. But I think that a great way to respond today is to ask the Lord to continue to supply what he requires of you. You aren't the source, he is. And so daily gravitate to him and depend on him and voice that need to him. He wants you to live for the glory of God and he will supply your every need. So let's go to him and ask him to be the supplier of everything that he requires of us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you do not call the equipped, but that you equip the called. Thank you, Lord, for supplying in us what you require of us. On the day of glory, it will be a terrible day for many, but for us who believe, it will be a day of triumph. Not because we bring holiness to the table, but because you supply in us what you require of us, and that is a holy heart. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for washing us and making us clean and blameless. I pray that we would live up to that standard by trusting wholly in your name. And it's in that name that we pray now. Amen. We'll have our discussion questions now at the end of our video. I pray that today has been great and that the discussion is a blessing. Continue to to lift up us that are gathering at the church building for now. And men, we hope and we long for the day that you are there with us. We love you and we'll see you soon.